Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, you can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here, hanging out with Fernando. Hola, Ben. Hey, Fernando, and also Travis Irvine. How you doing, Travis? Hello, greetings from Ohio, Ben. What's up, dude? I just, I was on a river for three days last weekend. Can you believe I survived that? You know, I do believe that you did, but that's only because you know how to talk to the trees, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Ben is a druid. I was ranting and raving at the stars and the sky, but it was beautiful. Had a great time on the river. Highly recommend getting out to nature. Have a nice time with nature. Today's episode is a fantastic episode, as always. Classic Kissel content. <laughs> Nothing could go wrong. A little bit later on, we speak with journalist Salim Saeed. He is uh, a specialist, or he focuses mainly on uh, on Palestine and, of course, what's going on with the uh, situation uh, with Israel and Palestine. So we get into that, specifically focusing on some of the devastation of the uh of the folks who live on in in Gaza man it's just it's it sucks dude and that's the most uh working class way i can say uh <laughs> how bad it truly is it freaking sucks so we're going to talk with him and uh, hopefully get you guys a little bit more information shed some light on uh on what's happening over there and uh, certainly we're not getting all the story from mainstream american news so we give you the other side that you are not hearing but before we get to that Mr. Irvine, you have caused local trouble once again in Ohio. <laughs> oh, boy. Larry Householder, it's not just a clever name. It's what he was. He was in the House of Representatives in Ohio. He was, as a matter of fact, he was the Speaker of the House. He has been ousted, and apparently uh, he's complaining that a lot of people are texting him and calling him, and I have a feeling that's because you gave his phone number out right here on this show. So, Mr. Irvine, what do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> I have nothing but good things to say because that was amazing. This week, yes, as you highlighted, Ben, uh, we've been covering this scandal with the energy bill. HB6 in Ohio and the FBI called it. uh, It was a $60 million plus bribery scheme that put Larry Householder 
back in the House of Representatives and made him the Speaker of the House so they could pass a $1.5 billion bailout for <laughs> nuclear uh, companies. So uh, we've been covering Larry on the show here and there. And of course, yes, a few weeks ago on episode 544, Ben, wow. uh, we, we got into it. And uh, that was the week, of course, Ohio was named the number one state for public corruption. Oh, so sad. I think some of us have had it. <laughs> so I have had Larry Householder's uh, personal cell phone number for a while. Um, and of course, I read it on the air. You and have lo to. and behold, lo and behold, Ben, it seemed that all of our beautiful fans and listeners actually took our advice and texted Larry Householder to resign and repeal HB6, <laughs> which is what I told him to do. And then this week, before he was expelled, he was allowed to testify on his right. side of the story. And being the victim that he is, oh. he complained about paid for texts that all said resign and repeal hb6 was which then he was like i can't do that and uh so it looks like our fans indeed made a difference so Honestly, that's just very exciting news i think the audience whether you're left right center or up or down we're all just so sick of corrupt politicians really? from cuomo all the way to larry householder it doesn't matter what the name brand on your shirt is i'm so sick of these corrupt politicians so there's nothing more fun than agitating these complete and utter scumbags who would do anything for the little bit of power that they have received. Let's play the clip of Larry Householder complaining that he's getting mean texts. Uh, my trips to the mailbox, I usually have postcards and letters. And uh, other than the occasional paid for text of uh, someone asking me to resign, and it's real simple, you know it's paid for because it's from Florida and Tennessee and California and Arkansas <laughs> and Alabama and New York, <clears throat> and they always say the same thing, repeal House Bill 6 and resign. Yeah, dude. I guess they don't realize that it would be impossible for me to do that. <laughs> Boom. So very key. Now, I listened to the podcast, episode 544. I did say it wrong. I told everyone to text him to resign and repeal HB6. So I think the point he was trying to make was I can't resign and then repeal HB6. But then he said it wrong in his testimony. So then he looked dumb nine minutes in and it threw off his entire testimony. And lo and behold, he got expelled overwhelmingly. 75 votes affirmative to only 21 Republicans stuck up. Uh, for Larry Householder. So, wow. folks, I just want to go ahead and, and give you that number again. 740-707-2500. And congratulate our friend Larry on his early retirement. <laughs> well, okay. As long as he's retired, then you have to leave him alone. <laughs> he anyway. may not have the cell phone anymore either. I think no, he might state, not. State paid for uh, he, phone. He might not. Well, speaking of giving out cell phone numbers, obviously Donald Trump gave out Lindsey Graham's cell phone number. Ham and biscuits, y'all. <laughs> And, uh, and Lindsay still loves him. So it's all good. So maybe <laughs> even good. you and Larry can get together. So we did have a situation happening now. So Biden met with Putin. Did you guys hear about this? Mm -hmm. Did you guys see the summit? Yes. Oh, you know, yes. it, was, it was very interesting. And uh, Biden definitely being a little bit more stern with Vladimir uh, than Donald Trump was. For example, he doesn't believe him when he talks because uh, probably no one lies better, more effectively and more sincerely, ironically, than Vladimir Putin. The dude is like, makes CIA look like they are nothing but kindergarten kids trying to cosplay as superheroes. This man is like, seriously, he plays 12D chess. Anywho, he met with Biden. 
not too much news on that front. They haven't come up with anything. Nothing has really been made uh, too public as far as if they've uh, agreed or disagreed on whatever the hell the, they were talking about. Of course, cyber warfare is still happening and the Biden administration taking a much more hawkish view on Putin and Russia than the Trump administration, which is why, of course, the Russians supported Donald Trump in 2016. They saw what Hillary Clinton did to Gaddafi as Secretary of State and said, you know what? Maybe I don't want to have a knife up my ass. Let's go with this Trump guy, the guy who seems to love me because I know how to ride a horse. Anywho, interestingly enough, Osama bin Laden's niece, she was there to protest the Biden-Putin <laughs> summit with a huge flag that just said Trump won. So isn't that nice? The freedom fighters out there. Uh, she is, uh, who knew Osama bin Laden's niece? Uh, she is a huge, massive Trumper. Her name is Nor Bin Laden. Fun little name. I love it. Uh, she was on a boat, and she was holding up a, uh, a sign that just said Trump won, and it was in Geneva. So it just show you the power. We talk about social media with Salim. Mm-hmm. It shows you the power of uh, misinformation, lies, deception from all ilks, coming from all walks of life, affecting all walks of life, including Osama Bin Laden's niece who was a massive, massive Trump supporter. It's almost like the country survived a mutiny from within. Yes. Oh, yeah, I get I mean, 20 years after 9-11, uh, the man who uh, allegedly uh, did the whole thing, his daughter supports Trump. I mean, it, it, you can't make this stuff up. When I saw that story, that's why I sent it to you guys. I look forward to uh, this uh, Nor Bin Laden, as, uh, her new show with Meghan McCain, The Spew. Uh, you, I, you know, I think she was trolling. I don't actually think she believes that, uh, that uh, Trump won. I don't know. Uh, you know who was really trolling? I think uh, you saw what Putin said as a response to reporters after the, the summit, right? I didn't see no, it. So he re- they, when he asked how it went, Trump said, I'm sorry, Putin said, there is no happiness in life. There is only a mirage on the horizon. So we'll cherish that. And then, but, but there's more. Awesome, bro. But I believe, but I believe there's a spark of hope in his eyes when he was talking about Biden. Oh, isn't that nice? It's always about the eyes, right? That's what Bush said. He said he looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul, right? And then (laughs) prime minister. Yep, that's what Bush said. You know, these strong world leaders, they're so good at telling if someone's lying to them or not. (laughs) Anywho, I don't think that she was trolling. I think there's a lot of people who just think that Trump won. Same thing January 6th was not a bunch of like actors and stuff. It's just like what it is. People are trying to like muddy the water so much here. Anywho, it doesn't really matter because Trump He very well might win the hearts of audiences all over the country (laughs) as he goes on his history tour with Bill O'Reilly. And I can't wait to see it. And I'm super excited. We're going to be live tweeting it. Oh, yes, we will be. Um, Also, Mike Pence, he was recently uh, he he gave a speech at the Faith and Freedom Caucus. He was heckled. Uh, They called him a traitor and they booed and stuff like that. So Mike Pence's political career is over um, because he tied himself to uh, to Donald Trump. And that's exactly what happens there. Yeah, we tied himself to Donald Trump and then Donald Trump supporters tried to tie up Mike Pence's neck. Good grief. Yes, they did. And uh, then really the other big story. Did you guys have you guys been following the Wuhan stuff? All the COVID mm. stuff, we're finding a lot more information and we're well, going to continue to follow it. But I mean, it is very possible human error. This entire thing may have just started off like a freaking Looney Tunes cartoon. That's the the rant that Jon Stewart uh, went on on Stephen Colbert's show on Monday. That's honestly how, because keep in mind, Ben, right? Jon Stewart was like the voice of reason for oh, yeah. college years during the Bush Cheney years. So when, when Jon Stewart goes on a TV show, and uh, start saying, yo, we got to look into this. 
you know what? My little millennial ears perk up. Absolutely. My worry is what will, you know, I, I understand what the effects, but what will, maybe I don't. What are the effects of it? You know, it turns out it was a chemical warfare because that's basically well, that what, be, was, what it becomes, right? Well, that, that's, I mean, that was the thing with COVID. There's so many different ways to unpack it. And certainly if we had certain governments at a certain time, it would have led to mass warfare. The only reason that it didn't was because economically we can never have an actual war with China. But without a doubt, if this happened under, I mean, who even knows? Someone like an Eisenhower, who knows who it could be? Not that he likes to use warfare as his main tool when it comes to diplomacy. But you could definitely see an angle being pitched to the American people that this was an act of biological warfare, and it could have, without a doubt, led to a World War III-like situation. But economically, of course, we're so tied, so there really is no way that that can ever happen, and I don't think it will happen in our lifetime. But yeah, that's the, the, the thing that angers me is that everything's been so muddied and we haven't been able to get any actual information because no one's telling the truth because they're all playing political games. And so we'll just see what happens. I was talking with Marcus Parks about this, and uh, it just it's very possible there is no conspiracy theory the conspiracy theory is always what it is which is just human incompetence it is so this whole thing is just a bad day at the office for the world uh, well uh, that's that's the interconnectivity of the world we live in someone's mistake in a lab in china absolutely you know, that's i mean if you think that something happening across the globe isn't affecting you this is hands down proof that someone literally breaking a beaker in a lab twelve thousand miles from you will shut down the world it really is unbelievable and i and i wish that you know, because Trump was there, no one could even entertain the idea because he's such a fucking asshole calling it the China virus and all this stuff. Everything right. was so clouded in 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 race and in just politics again. And it's just been really sad. So the more we'll we'll cover this, obviously, in greater detail. As a matter of fact, we'll probably get some doctor on here. Some one of these doctors, one of them PhD, one of these PhDs, pretty hot and, and damn, you owe a lot of money. OK, hello. <laughs> Um, but we're going to talk about that because it's it's really upsetting and it's infuriating to me as someone who saw my friends and and people who I love get played by uh, by media and um, it really I don't know I just think the people don't know who to trust because now after this after everyone in their life goes through one of those moments where they realize that they've been manipulated and then they have to be like oh I I was that person that I never thought I could be and I think we're going to see a lot of that um, you know that's just going to be. That's just going to be the way it is. And the flip-flopping doesn't help. You no, know, when you, you know, it's a, what was happening with the masks in the very beginning. Oh, we're not supposed to wear them. Now we're supposed to wear them. Now we're not supposed to wear when them. And you have idiot it, states banning the use of masks. And then you have, uh, I just, it, yeah, I mean, like, how the, people on Facebook already believe this was a, some sort of Chinese attack. You know, I'm not saying people on Facebook, but you know, the, the, the conspiracy theory is that this well, is a Chinese attack. attack. Yeah. And then we go back and, okay, it was just a virus. Now it was an accident from the Chinese. You're not going to convince the people. It's the, just, you know, it's just human well, incompetence Travis. Yeah, and you guys made the point i mean it's it got so politicized right because i mean even again john stewart's kind of going on this rant on colbert and colbert chimes in with uh well how long have you done media relations for senator ron johnson and that is kind of where we're at where it's like it's this trumpy side versus the liberal side trump poisoned everyone's brain so much mm, i don't know what right, happened to right. colbert colbert is like yeah, anyway he's just 
Just stop thinking about Donald Trump. It's such an abusive relationship. He's very mad. He's very mirror mad. Uh, he's Catholic. He's Catholic. <laughs> they always have a lot of hidden anger. They mm. really do. I don't know why. I don't know why. But we will cover that and we'll figure out. Well, we won't figure out. I'm going to trust people who figure out what happened um, because there has been so many rumors. And I'm not making any solidified point here. I'm just saying it's this is what the evidence is beginning to show. And it's just really sad that we weren't able to get more truthful information throughout the entirety of 2020 because um, no one could trust the president and anything that he said, even if he stumbled upon something that may have actually been true, you still have to be like, but the entire thing is so shit. It's all you put a good piece of pepperoni in a pile of shit. I'm still not going to eat the pizza. <laughs> not eating that and, pepperoni. <laughs> and so you're like, oh, maybe he said something right on accident because he, he just fucked with this country psychologically so bad. And so it breaks my heart that we didn't get any kind of actual answers. And we just had a bunch of people yelling at each other when we should have been coming together during a global pandemic. But we did not because, again, the people at the top. I don't. I don't think they really mind when we're fighting with each other or burning down the streets. I don't think they really care. I think it's almost they like say. they prefer it. Yeah, it's they almost like they money. prefer it. Yeah, it's almost like you know Cuomo could get an Emmy and write a book and a lot of money to be made, a lot of money to be made by a very few amount of people, and now they're all going to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna die there. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I don't even care anymore. <laughs> Anyways, we're covering the Black Death for last podcast also. So it's just fascinating to see history repeat. Truly, Obviously, this truly. is not as bad as the Black Death. That was pretty brutal. We don't throw shit out the windows anymore unless you're having fun. Um, it's We do live in a slightly more sanitized uh, society, but it is interesting to kind of just see how human beings uh, react to times of extreme stress. And some did it, uh, dare I say, better than others. And unfortunately, the people who are in charge did it the worst than everyone so that's just what that is are you even allowed to talk about the black death with a critical race theory everything that's happening with i don't that what the fuck is going oh on with goodness. this oh my god all right we got to get to this interview with Salim. but everyone's ranting and raving critical race theory am i crazy or is it just teaching kids that slavery was real right and it's acknowledging what juneteenth means ben so it's, what is wrong i just don't understand what's wrong with that I don't understand what's wrong with it because, because then that's it just makes, part of american history i don't then it makes white people look like maybe they might have not been nice to other people. Oh, well, just no. look, just what, I mean, the first freaking movie ever made was Birth of a Nation. What is, I don't. That's a very, very good point. Very good why, point. But why wouldn't you want to learn about, it's just US history. It's not bad or good, it's just history and you have to learn from it. Anyway, cause I don't, I watch very little television news these days. I like to read my papers. But it seems like this critical race theory thing is just a massive straw man argument and they're ranting. It's some culture war bullshit that Absolutely. I fucking hate. Exactly. It's right up the same uh, lane as the, the transgender sports bands, right? It's just, it's a, it's dog whistles and political fodder for the people who want it. Right here in Ohio, they're trying to ban critical race theory and it's just like, there's no evidence that's even being taught, right? I mean, it's like you said, for me, I went to a great public school. It's just history. You just learn about what happened and you can make your own decisions. Fix the roads, make sure people are safe. <laughs> Those are your jobs. I don't understand everyone. And the irony is it's, it seems like the, this is the rights version of cancel culture. So they're yeah. canceling critical race theory. Like they've canceled mass. Leave We're canceling people, cancel culture. You're canceling. Just leave us alone. Just stop. If the bill isn't about helping out 
uh, because of uh, you didn't let us work during COVID or fixing our schools or making sure we have clean drinking water or making sure that we have roads to drive safely on, then just don't even go to work that day. <laughs> like your day's better used. <laughs> That's it. Just sh- shut up. Just shut up. Please, Lord, I could take that advice for myself and I will right now. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Let's uh, let's go on with our interview with Salim. What do you think? It sounds like a great time to All right. do a brief little intro. With his, do a little uh, intro. Yeah, let the, uh, let the audience know who Salim is. And Travis brought him to our attention, and he was unbelievably sweet. And he was, uh, I forget where he was recording from, but it was like 1 o'clock in the morning, and he was totally lie. sober. He was from, he was in Dubai. Okay. I don't think they can drink there. Yeah. There's not a lot of booze floating around the Middle East. No. If it is, no. if it is you got to find it. Eddie, find well, it. Eddie, when he goes on his USO tours, that's, they feed all the Americans all the booze. He was yes, like, it was the drunkest it he's ever been. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So Salim, uh, Salim and I went to Columbia Journalism School together. We graduated same year, 2012. He's an American journalist of Palestinian and Armenian origin. So he has insight into refugee experiences from both of those cultures. Um, and he's got over 10 years of experience based in Dubai covering areas of innovation, society, business, and technology in the Middle East. Um, and of course, uh, his work has been featured on Time, CNN, and Agents Front Press. And uh, he's really, it's going to be, a, it's a great interview. I'm so glad we got him on. All right, everyone. Now it is time for our interview with the exceptional journalist, Salim Saeed. All right, there we go. You noticed the long pause because everyone was so impressed. I was able to get the name right, which is something I'm working on. Uh, anyway, Salim, thank you so much for being on the show, man. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So let's just start with the beginning of the, the conflict between Israel and Palestine and go from there because all and we have five minutes. I'm just joking. Uh, let's talk about the most recent conflict going on right now in Israel. I want to hear your perspective mainly on why was the coverage so intense? This go around, obviously, the feud between the Palestinians and the Israelis has been going on for quite a while. And it seems as if there has been a lot of blood shed that has not been covered uh, by American media. A lot of blood goes down, uh, a lot of blood goes by and the media says i didn't see that uh, but of course the most recent uh, events certainly got a lot of coverage so do you just want to talk a little bit about the coverage of the most recent events what's going on internationally and why were they so significant yeah i mean i can't say it's exactly one thing but it's, it seems like there were like a chain reaction of events and well-placed timings so the first thing that was happening was that in sheikh jarrah a neighborhood in east jerusalem you know which is uh, currently occupied that there were uh, like uh, house expulsions, you know, from I, I believe it was around like 40 Palestinians, uh, you know, sorry, 40 Palestinian homes were, you know, were targeted there. And then that's, you know, what in- initiated all of this in terms of, you know, what was hitting the media. They were being called evictions. 
And, you know, that start, like, it was, I think it was at the beginning, the language even that started to really trigger people and saying, wait a minute, you know, this isn't right. We've heard, you know, this type of language before. We've seen the, you know, the, the same type of effects. And then, you know, this was also just before Ramadan. And during Ramadan, then you had the uh, Al-Aqsa uh, mosque arrests. And you had, you know, people that were going to, you know, to pray, you know, during the one of the holiest times of the year being arrested forcefully. So from both sides, you, know, you had, you know, people like you had young people, you know, being arrested. You had, you know, during the significant time of the year. And then, you know, you had Gaza, you know, happening after that. But I think what brought it all to light was um, the presence on social media where, you know, social media has been around, uh, you know, for a good while now. Yeah. But I think it was the level of expression, you know, that people were able to have. So, for example, you saw the faces of Muhammad al-Kurd and his sister. They, there was this whole campaign of, you know, smiling when you get arrested. That was something that really resonated with people where they were so used to the suppression and, you know, just, you know, wearing a smile on your face to show that you weren't affected, you know, really added that human element to it. Right. People were addressing the language that was being used to describe the situation. So, as I mentioned, you know, uh, if you notice, I use the word expulsion versus eviction. So, you know, this is systemic ethnic cleansing in terms of these people are being targeted because of their heritage. It's not a land dispute. It's not, you know, this isn't like a legal matter, you know, that uh, like because technically these have been, I believe, in Israeli courts since 2008 in terms of, you know, debating this. But at, at the end of the day, this is all under UN, uh, you know, land that's, you know, designated by the UN as Palestinian land. So it's uh, considered occupied and you're not allowed to expel, you know, kick people out who are, right. um, you know, living on their own land, you know, despite what your beliefs may be about historic, like thousands of years ago, who owned what. So it's the culmination of all these things together that seem to, you know, really make this hit hard, you know, more recently. So we don't have to get into the weeds of local Israeli politics, because I have a feeling that's a whole nother show that we could have you on for. But when it comes to Netanyahu, exactly. obviously he's gone now. Herzog is now the president uh, of uh, in Israel. Do you think that the the upheaval of the settlements and uh, the the uh, again the expulsion of people from their homes was this a political move by Netanyahu to try to get more far right support to say hey the war is still going on you need me in charge despite all the corruption and unbelievable horrible things he's been doing over these you know almost a damn decade now um, yeah. do you think this was just nothing mm -hmm. more than a political move to try to maintain power is it just as simple as that in this case or was there something else going on um to be honest it, it does sound like the status quo uh i mean this isn't the first time gaza has been attacked like th there was 2008 2012 2014 now it's 2021 so no this isn't new in terms of attacking gaza to strengthen support at home because you know it's a sign of strength showing that he's um, you know quelling the palestinian opposition and showing a strong stance a far-right stance and I don't think, you know, as with Naftali Bennett, as, you know, the new PM, I don't think that's going to change at all in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the from the Israeli side of things, in terms of like how Palestinians are going to be uh, dealt with in that regard. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't see anything right. really changing with this. And I don't th and, you know, whether even with the Biden presidency, I don't think, you know, Palestinians in general see that there's going to be a change in, you know, American foreign policy towards this uh, anyway. Yeah. I want to get Travis Irvine and Fernando in here as well. So whenever you guys want, just jump in. Uh, when it comes just just to kind of keep it going here, when it comes to the Palestinian response, 
Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience? We don't often hear about the Palestinian experience, especially in this country. Obviously, the U.S. and Israel are tied uh, very economically, of course, uh, militarily. We have very thick ties uh, with the Israeli government. Uh, most of the weapons that they're using right now uh, that might lead to immense amounts of death have our name written right on it. So can you talk a little bit about the Palestinian experience and some uh, a family growing up in Gaza, a place where... Where do they turn to? Obviously, you know, Hamas, uh, you know, air quotes, terrorist group. I understand there's been a lot of they've done a lot of horrible things. But now I also understand in, in many ways uh, they're an advocate for certain Palestinians who feel as if they don't have any other advocates. But is there any place for the Palestinians to turn to that can, I don't know, truly help them out of this situation? Well, again, that's where I think social media comes in, where. I don't think they are putting much faith, you know, in the powers, you know, that rule, uh, you know, their domains, you know, whether in Gaza or in the West Bank. Uh, they don't have faith, uh, I don't think, in, you know, in the international community in terms of stepping in since it's been about like 73 years, uh, I believe, uh, you know, where no action has been taken and their situation is still the same and history keeps repeating itself. Right. Um, you know, and describing like what the situation is like, it's very different for, you know, uh, different groups of people. So... For example, like someone living in Gaza is living a very different experience than someone living in you know, East Jerusalem or uh, as a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship or in the West Bank. It's because if if they're all uh, occupied in that sense. But for example, like Gaza has everything from, you know, water, uh, electricity, resources, even their uh, IT systems are regulated you know, by Israel. So nothing you know, goes in or out without Israeli approval. And I think, you know, what you were asking in terms of, you know, how do Palestinians feel about this? I think they just feel dehumanized that, you know, they're going through all this and it's not being acknowledged. And when it gets reported in the media, uh, for example, like, you know, you see headlines, um, you know, in mainstream news and, you know, they call this a conflict or a centuries old war or, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like a war between religions when it's not about that at all. It's uh, at the end of the day, this is about human beings. This is about. Uh, you know, children and, you know, who are, who don't have like PTSD, they have just constant stress because right. this is a problem that's not ending. It's like current stress uh, syndrome. Yeah. Concurrent. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And it, it just keeps repeating and it, it does, they, they see no end and it, it takes a toll on someone. And, you know, when we're, uh, you know, looking at, you know, uh, whether Gaza or the West Bank, it's how do you expect a society to develop, to have leadership, to have you know, these uh, democratic values and all of that when they're not even allowed to grow into because uh, people, a lot of people, they can't even, you know, uh, find work. They can't, you know, go to hospitals. Uh, they're not allowed to have, you know, elections. They're they're not allowed to do the basic things that we take for granted. So, you right. know, these, so I think that's, you know, what uh, they're trying to communicate to the rest of the world, you know, and it's, yeah. they're doing it now through social media. And even a lot of journalists are getting their information, not from mainstream uh, you know, channels anymore because they're seeing the discrepancy between the narrative even that's being discussed you know from mainstream organizations versus even just like uh, information centers you know that are on the ground that are trying to help journalists discover right. the real story and you know it's interesting this happens uh, we're discussing this it's uh, juneteenth which is the new national holiday here in America, <laughs> um, discussing, you know, the history of this country and some of the racial sins of our past that we're trying to amend. And it's interesting. You have Israel, obviously, 
kind of flying the same slogan of democracy and freedom. And then we have this similar thing happening uh, now uh, as mm-hmm. to uh, what what has happened in this country previously. It is weird how more people seem to be upset about the idea of Juneteenth as a national holiday than slavery itself. But that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> right. So it would be nice if uh, if the U.S. was able to uh, back up their slogan with a little bit more action, because what would you like to see, you know, I, I love what you just said about how people call it like it's a forever war. It's a conflict. Generational warfare is unbelievably difficult to stop because, uh, as we learned from Princess Bride, you kill somebody's father. They're going to come after you and try to kill you. I get it. Um, but what would be something just as far as, a, as as an answer, as a solution? Is there anything that you could see? Um, happening with the, I know this new administration. It's basically, you know, out of the frying pan into the fryer. I know he's a fairly far right guy as well. Um, but is there anything in the near future, or at all possible, that could have some kind of peaceful resolution to get these people, specifically in Gaza, the human rights that they deserve? Yeah, and I mean, what you said is exactly on point. And I think what people are asking, what Palestinians are asking for, and you know, just a lot of uh, people who are aware of the human rights situation is that you just need to uh, treat it with more humanity. You know, you have uh, President Biden, who uh, who his election campaign was based on the ethical platform. He just said in his recent, uh, after his recent trip, you know, meeting with Putin uh, and during that summit that, you know, how can I be the president of the United States of America and not speak about human rights? Right. And I think when it comes to Palestinians, there's um, this concept that's been, uh, you know, used for a long time now of progressive except for Palestine, where mm. a, where a lot of other, you know, when it comes to Russia, when it comes to China, when it comes to, um, you know, other countries around the world, um, in North Korea, you know, human rights is a major concern. We just have to act. We have to do something. But when it comes to the Palestinian issue, we're still donating about 38 billion U.S. tax dollars over the span of 10 years, you know, to fund uh, military occupation, but nothing is being said about this. So as a journalist, whether, you know, a person of Palestinian origin or not, it's not, you know, it's just about looking at the, you know, as an American, I'm concerned about where my tax, you know, uh, payer dollars are going, right? And I think this is what's starting to be discussed now from this type of awareness. So I think that's the question that, you know, that people are having right now. And what's the social uh, media awareness doing? It's bringing to light you know, that, oh, wait a minute, we are actually giving this much money to an occupation that we do not understand much about. And, uh, you know, we're being fed this type of information. But then, you know, when we're looking at what people are saying on social media, it's a completely different story. So right. um, so I hope I answered. I know I think I went on a tangent in terms of uh, your question. But and I think, you know, that's where the direction that uh, people are headed right now. It's, you know, now they're being more aware of uh, things that they weren't aware of before. So. What do the people like of Gaza, obviously they want to be left the F alone and not be, you know, kicked out of their homes unfairly and unlawfully. Do they want independence? Do they want Israel to get the fact that their energy, as you mentioned, and basically it seems like most of their utilities are all uh, in the hands of the Israelis. Do they want that to stop? Or if that did stop, would then that put them in a devastating place as well? Like, how does this work? Because I know it reminds me a little bit, not, I mean, not really much, but somewhat of like how we have Puerto Rico, where Puerto Mm. Rico, you know, they do receive a lot of uh, U.S. funding. Now, there is a movement that they kind of want to separate a little bit, but then there's other other people who are like, but we do get some pretty good stuff from the U.S. I'm more of a make Mm. them a 51st state guy and give them all of the benefits of this country. But at the end of the day, 
they are reliant, almost like Stockholm syndrome, on the people of Gaza. They are reliant of the people of Israel, so or the Israeli government. Of course, we have to separate. The people are great. The governments can be effed up, <laughs> uh, but people right. are good. Yeah. Um, do they want independence, or what are some of the uh, struggles or issues with that? Yeah, and sorry, I think that's that is what you asked before, which I didn't uh, answer directly. So yeah, I, yeah, I think what people, the first thing that people want is uh, to be treated with dignity, with justice. And that's not what they're getting right now. So, uh, you know, when I say dehumanized, when uh, I mean, like not even referring to Palestinians as Palestinians, you know, calling them Arabs, um, mm. when like, it's you can even see like in the language, like when someone is being, you know, kicked out of their home, they're facing eviction. It sounds like, you know, they didn't pay their rent or something. It's like I think what they're mm. at the beginning, what they're looking for is, you know, to be treated uh, equally. Uh, you know, uh, Israel claims to be a democracy. So you have, you know, Palestinians with Israeli citizenship who are not equal under the law. So you have those people, you know, that are living in Israel that are living a very different life to uh, other Israelis. You have people in Gaza who they're having, uh, like I mentioned before, their electricity, their water, their entire life is being dictated. They they want their autonomy. Right. Uh, and then from that, like, give them the chance to be able to have fair elections, to have you know, the freedom to education, to grow as a society so that, you know, they can reach that point where they can have these types of conversations. I think right now it's, you know, for example, we say the Gaza war. What war? I mean, what army, uh, you know, uh, exists there, you know, besides Hamas, which was created, you know, uh, in the 1980s, you know, but this the wars with Gaza and the occupation of Gaza has been happening much before that. It hasn't been able to grow as a society. It's they call it like the largest open prison in the world. Don't tell Sheriff Joe Arpaio that he's going to build a bigger one. <laughs> Sheriff Joe in Arizona. He wants to have the biggest open prison in the world. Well, you know, yeah, we, let's, I hope let's, this wasn't a challenge. But <laughs> exactly. Let's pivot a little bit, because obviously we talk about the, uh, you know, air quotes evictions, the uh, the kicking out of people from their homes. What would that lead to? Obviously, I would I would assume a refugee crisis. Uh, we sort of have a refugee crisis in this country as well, given what's going on in Central and South America. We have a lot of people coming uh, to America uh, in uh, to the U.S. In, in need. So when it comes to the refugee crisis, how has the conflict uh, increased that? What does that look like now? And uh, I don't even let's just start there and try to figure that out, because I know you have personal experience uh, with your own family, uh, with the uh, status of being a refugee. Yeah, exactly. I mean, first of all, you know, where to start in terms of uh, like, uh, first of all, how many refugees are out there? There are millions in 1948. Um, that's when my dad became a refugee. He was only, uh, I think, less uh, than two years old. Uh, and then he thought he was, uh, you know, he was escaping the, the war that was taking place. This is like when uh, Jews from, uh, you know, settler colonialists from Europe came, you know, to Palestine at the time in 1948. And this was while Palestine was ruled under the British mandate. So, you know, going back in history, there were the Ottomans, then the British, and then, you know, Israel as it is today. So uh, my dad was... Uh, his father lived, you know, um, under uh, the British mandate, and then they thought they were just leaving, you know, for two weeks. And then uh, they went to Egypt. Uh, they stayed at a hotel. They left all their belongings back home. And then since then, my dad, you know, he's 75 years old now, and he has never been back to Palestine. We still have a copy of our deed. Uh, and then this is the story of refugees. Like, so I'm... Yeah, how does... How, when you speak with your father about that, how does he feel about that? Does he feel like he was... Something was taken from him personally? Because, I mean... You know, homeland's a homeland, and it it's ingrained in you. How like it, does he still carry a lot of pain because of that? 
Definitely. I mean, he's, um, yeah, he, he's like, it's all he's known. So it's, uh, I remember like he, he lived for many years. I mean, actually, sorry, his father at first, like wasn't able to get work, you know, because um, he was under refugee status. So this is what a lot of people are facing today uh, in terms of being, uh, whether internally displaced, you know, uh, within, you know, the Palestinian territories, or uh, there are even uh, internally displaced people within Jerusalem, that people that have Israeli uh, citizenship that are unable to go back to their villages. So it's kind of like this constant limbo, whether it's physically, whether it's economically, whether it's uh, through identity. I mean, I look at myself and I'm a uh, third generation, uh, you know, Palestinian refugee isn't, well, I mean, I'm not technically a refugee, but in terms of I'm a third generation, you know, from my father who was a refugee. Right. And when it comes to identity, uh, you know, I'm American. Uh, I'm originally Palestinian. My mom is Armenian. And that was a, she's a, another <laughs> product of a refugee from the Armenian genocide, yes. which was just recently acknowledged this year by Biden as well, after 106 years. So all this stuff, it just really affects your identity. Like, who are you? Where's your home? That's always the yeah. toughest question. It's like, where are you from? I, I mean, I say I'm American, but I grew up in Saudi Arabia and the Aramco compounds. Uh, my dad's originally Palestinian, grew up in Egypt. My mom's Armenian, grew up in Lebanon. It just leaves you in this lost place, I guess, you yeah. know, in terms of identity. It's, it's, it has its benefits too, but in terms of, uh, you know, like the Palestinian issue, uh, you know, you have like so many people living in refugee camps in Lebanon. They don't have an identity. They don't, they, they can't leave those, um, you know, those camps. Same thing in Jordan. I uh, sorry with, uh, with, yeah, with Palestinian refugees, you have Syrian refugees, the refugee identity, I think is something that just leaves you in limbo for a long period of time. And that's what Palestinians are feeling, you know, uh, 73 years later. Yeah. What do you think? Because obviously, you know, uh, Juneteenth is now a national holiday. Again, as I talked about, some people are like very upset about it. Um, what do you think about the power of acknowledgement? Because, you know, we can acknowledge all of the sins of the past. That's not going to change the past. But do you think it's important for some, we'll say the Biden administration, just to acknowledge something like the Armenian genocide? Does that because for people who, I mean, my father, I'm I'm a first generation immigrant from uh, from Germany, so we have a different history. But um, is it important to have it recognized on the national stage? Because some people are like, why are we talking about this? It's over. But then, obviously, as we've been discovering, the the wounds are still there. Hundred percent, and I think acknowledgement is extremely critical. I don't think you can heal or move past it. Uh, you know, without acknowledging it and going back to, you know, what do Palestinians want? I think they want to be included. Um, mm. You know, for example, like the, what's been thrown around is like the two state solution. But I think, you know, if there was a, you know, democratic state, which recognized uh, Palestinians and Jews equally, that would be something that Palestinians want. Of course, I mean, that's not possible. It's very difficult because I understand the Jewish uh, Israeli perspective and that they, you know, they want to have a Jewish majority. Uh, you know, to have a, a Jewish state because, uh, you know, everyone knows the history of after the Holocaust, what, you know, Jews faced in Europe. And, you know, the, the need is understood. I mean, uh, it, it, that is undeniable. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, the concern that Palestinians have is why don't you live with us instead of ruling over us and, you know, making us as either second class citizens or just completely outside and denying our identity as Palestinians. So, you know, to your point, when it comes to acknowledgement, Acknowledging Palestinian identity is critical. They're not other Arabs. They are Palestinians. Uh, you know, it, it, it reminds me of the Native American situation, where just because they didn't have like fixed land borders, just because they didn't define themselves in the way that the West did, it doesn't mean that their identity didn't exist. And uh, 
So I, I think they want recognition for their existence, you know, uh, over these years, what they've been through, the denial of their rights, you know, over, uh, you know, this period of time. And, um, you know, especially young people today, they're not carrying, I mean, uh, they don't want to carry the, you know, the weight of their ancestors on their shoulders, right. uh, you know, because now, I mean, now, you know, there are people that are from different generations. They just want to live their day to day lives. They want to have opportunities to work, to go to school. Uh, to have fun, you know, just to live life. And um, I think the first part, you know, uh, the first step is just uh, giving them, you know, human dignity and acknowledging who they are and what they've been through. And we have not acknowledged or addressed the Native American issue in this no, country. What what happened to the Native American has never fully been addressed. Casinos are a fine Band-Aid, I guess, because right. I go to them all the time. But economically, uh, the, those societies are still immensely struggling. And you're right. When, when you strip mm -hmm. people of identity, you, it, it's just so unbelievably devastating for generations to come. Politically, mm -hmm. I'm always so fascinated because um, so the far right in America they are very pro they're pro state of israel in the same way that they're they love the south koreans because they believe the people that were marching in charlottesville some of these maniacs um you know who we hear about all the time the the david duke followers and and so on and so forth alex jones acolytes it seems so strange to me they they also harness a lot of anti-semitic views but the thing that they like about israel is like they believe that that's where jewish people go is israel and that's why south korea is so good because that's where asian people and they have this very divisive very simplistic uh very divided view of how humans interact yeah. can you talk politically like how how weird is that when the right wing of one government uh, in the U.S. and in Israel, they, they get together, but then the underflow or the undercurrent, especially of American politics, it's, it's uh, I don't know, it, it just seems like strange political bedfellows to me. The anti-Semitic right also being massively in, in love with Israel. Yeah, to be honest, I can't really say I understand that. Travis, do you know, because I was just, <laughs> what do you think, Travis? Because I'm like, it's it's just such a bizarre, this, that's why politics are so fascinating. Right. I mean, it, it taps into the that Trump mentality of America first, mm -hmm. but then here's $3.8 billion, you know, for another country, um, similar to, to Republican and, and conservatives, the, the Trumpers, uh, their support of the police. It's like, they want to bring down spending, but they not when it comes to police and military. Um, so I, I certainly understand that sentiment. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. I, I do want to touch on Salim because obviously we both went to Columbia Journalism School. And how is the coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict different 
from other news outlets outside of the United States? Because I know growing up, that was a big thing for me. I grew up in a Jewish suburb. I always very much uh, believed in Israel's. Um, like you mentioned, they're, they have a right to exist. I respect Judaism so much. Um, but, you know, then I got to college. And I was like, oh, Israel's doing a lot of bad stuff. Uh, in the region, they're they're killing all these Palestinians, and I only really learned that thanks to uh, the broadening of media outside of just you know back in the day, it was just the three old TV networks. So you touched on the 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 aspect that social media is now playing in raising more awareness of this. But how do you see it from outside, being, especially since you're an American, being outside, um, seeing the coverage mm-hmm. from the rest of the world? No, that's a good question, and I think that's changed a lot. Um, you know, in, in, you know, more recently, um, in terms of, I think going back to uh, like seeing what mainstream media is producing, whether uh, you know it's from the U.S., from Europe, from elsewhere, the language has been more or less the same from my perspective. Uh, what I've seen things have changed is really online in terms of the language being used. And, you know, in the same way, as you said, you know, you grew up in a Jewish suburb, you had a certain perspective. I grew up, you know, with a certain perspective as well. I, I don't think I'd met someone Jewish until I went, or I, at least I didn't know I met someone Jewish until I went to the U.S. And then I was so curious about, uh, you know, meeting like Jewish people and Jewish Arabs that were living in the U.S. Uh, again, from Colombia. Uh, I remember that was, uh, I focused on the Syrian and um Lebanese communities. And the first thing I did was I wanted to meet the Lebanese and, and Syrian uh, Jews who had, you know, immigrated to the U.S. because I think this is a sentiment shared by many is that, you know, especially with younger generations, is that they want Jewish uh, Arabs, you know, to be able to um, be open in the Middle East about who they are. Um, you know, in the UAE, we have the Abraham Accords, you know, uh, which were just normalized. And that's one positive thing, you know, that I've seen from it in terms of uh, you know, celebration of, of Jewish culture. And I think that's something that, you know, everyone was upset about back in, you know, 1948, that, you know, with the creation of Israel, what it did was it, it caused like so many Jewish people to flee for security because the association was made that, you know, Israel is all Jews. And then, I, you know, that caused, you know, um, Jewish communities from, uh, you know, whether from Yemen, from Morocco, from all over the Middle East to leave their home countries. And, and the, that's what the new generation, I believe, mm. is really all about. They're making it a point, for example, you know, on social media to say, if you are anti-Semitic, don't speak out on this cause because we don't want your voice involved in this. So they want to make it clear, for example, that when they're criticizing, you know, Zionism and, you know, or, for example, they, the idea that, you know, um, one religion should rule over all, uh, you know, th- th- that's like, that's what they're specifically criticizing in terms of a state's policy. Right. But what they want to separate is that, no, this is not anti-Semitic. We are like, uh, as Arabs, as Palestinians, uh, they speak Semitic language. Arabic is a Semitic language. So, you know, you are one of us and they want, they, and I think that's what they're looking for. They want to see like uh, how we can actually live together, but fairly where we're respected and we can respect you back. And that's the narrative I think that's, um, you know, being celebrated today where it's like we're, uh, Arabs from, you know, all over the Middle East, you know, they, um, I think they, they want more inclusion uh, in the conversation and uh, they want it on an equal level. Uh, just a quick follow-up on that. Um, you know, the other thing I learned that was interesting was that there is a leftist uh, movement in Israel as well. There are, you know, as yeah. you described the solution that Palestinians want, there is um, Israeli political parties. There's certainly many, many citizens who also want that, but they just keep kind of getting drowned out by these strongmen, Bibi Netanyahu characters. Um, yeah. it, do you see any play? I mean, this recent alliance to oust Bibi, was that, 
leftists kind of just saying, okay, Herzog's not as bad? Um, you know, how did that kind of come together? Yeah, well, um, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not um, 100% sure about like the different movements, but I know that they, they exist there. I've seen, actually, when I was in the U.S., I, I experienced more about the Jewish communities that were for um, you know, basically like democratic rights for all. So um, right. I remember I did it when I was working for a time. I remember I covered a protest. This was in 2012. And it was just very interesting. It was educational for me. And, uh, you know, I got, you know, I, I met, uh, I think it was uh, Jewish Voices for Peace uh, was the name of the organization, if I remember correctly. And they were one of the most vocal. And they were saying that, you know, that we don't want a state that's, uh, that carries our name, you know, as a Jewish state that is doing this to other people. So it's, yeah, I mean, there, there are many org, uh, individuals, there are many organizations, uh, you know, whether in Israel or, or outside that, you know, that, that want, you know, similar type things. And I think it's a younger generational thing. Uh, you know, I, I believe um, when, when we, when we hear from right-wingers, it's about like holding on to power. It's right. um, like to, to these, uh, yeah, to these like old values of, you know, it has to be this way where we have to have like we have to rule by force because that's what's worked in the past, you know, to work now. But as we've seen, you know, uh, so many decades later, it's not actually working. It is so funny or not, I don't know. It's not funny. It's kind of sad. It's always a younger generational thing, but then yeah. nothing changes. So I'm assuming yeah. those young people grew up. Yeah. I wonder what happens at some point. I think you just experience so much freaking uh, trauma and you just get so angry and then the cycle just continues because it's always supposed to be the young generation but then 20 <laughs> years later like that dude's 40 <laughs> like, right, you know, right. when does it actually change oh my goodness but anyway going back just quickly because i just want to i don't think i don't know anything about the rep so when we have the refugee crisis for example mm. um we don't cover, it's the same way in the U.S. where we show war, we show the bombs going off, and we never show what happens after they land. We just go, mm. oh, my God, look at that explosion. And then we then we turn the channel and go watch Guy's Grocery Games, which is a fantastic show, and I love Guy Fieri. Um, but it's <laughs> very dangerous and very sad that yeah. we do that in this country. So you've been removed from your home. You're in Palestine. Where do you go? What happens? Are you just in, Are is it just a camp? I mean, what does your life look like? at that point well that's the thing like some people they've just never left the camp i mean when you're a uh, uh, like some people have lived their entire lifetimes in camps like the idea was that um you know after a while they're going to be relocated but doesn't that get, uh, i mean does, does yeah. that sentence especially as someone uh, if you're israeli wouldn't that sentence be like oh i think that doesn't sound good we're gonna have to change this if we have entire generations living in camps this is not any anyway go on yeah. but that just seems no, like exactly just that it. sentence alone should trigger like oh we should change that and, and exactly like to the earlier point about like humanizing i think if you because i think right now it's easy to uh, be okay with this when when it's thought you know that oh Palestinians are doing uh, this to themselves where oh if they would just you know go along with the peace plans that we're giving them that are basically uh, you know taking away everything uh, from them then oh then uh, everything would be okay but you can't do that and it's you have to like for example you have to when you treat someone with dignity when you treat them with humanity then that's like the starting point where you can have a conversation about a solution but I think at this point there's such a difference between uh, of power. Uh, in a conversation. So, for example, you know, why should the uh, stronger party listen to what the weaker party has to say? Uh, we need to level it a little bit by empowering Palestinians to be able to have a voice, to first of all have security, to, you know, be able to, uh, again, like I was saying, like go to school, uh, empower themselves, have a society, and then, uh, you know, 
that will empower them, you know, to be able to have, you know, the conversation. But then that needs to be allowed. Occupation needs to stop for that to happen. And that that's where the, uh, I don't know if it's a chicken or egg thing, but like which one comes before? It's, um, that's a hard part. How can you reach the solution if, uh, you know, they're saying, like a lot, it's said a lot of the times that, you know, oh, if uh, once Palestinians can uh, be more peaceful, then, you know, we can have that conversation with them. But how can, how, how can you expect someone to not protest, to not speak out when they're trapped, when every aspect of their life is being controlled by, you know, that outside force. Right. And also they do say the chicken came before the egg. That's oh, what the scientists okay. said, because there's a certain, Lizard. there's a certain thing in the egg. Dinosaurs, that, lizards, frogs. I'm no scientist, all right? I'm just telling you the chicken came before the egg. Fernando, you could have just solved this conflict right now. I did. I saw it on a meme. I I have a question for Salim about social media. So uh, it's a very loaded question, so hear me out here. So Hmm? social media can be good. You you talked about all the ways social media is helping in the Middle East. Uh, You know, we've seen it help. The the Arab Spring, social media, Twitter, things like that. Hmm. But in America... Social media doesn't always help. For example, the 2016 mm. election. So uh, do you see that happening over there? Is, is, uh, is Facebook being used for evil by the government, you know, as well? And B, is, is that something that affects the way is, is social media is such a movement is used by by the movement so much? Is it scary? Is that does that you know, is that yeah. dangerous? How much does the government manipulate exactly. social media? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think it's very different in uh, this situation, but they did, but Palestinians did face, and Palestinian activists in general faced a lot of, uh, especially on Instagram, when they tried to post something, all of a sudden they'd get a message that specifically told them when, say, say, for example, using a hashtag like Save uh, Sheikh Jarrah. They'd get like a technical difficulty message. Uh, I remember like trying to upload some stuff and wondering why it's just taking forever, you know, to upload, you know, um, certain hashtags. And then, you know, my account would just like freeze or something. And uh, it it was interesting to see that how systemic this was, even on social media. So it was a different problem in terms of like the toxicity, I guess, of Mm -hmm. social media and how people were using it. And it was very, uh, you know, you just have to say something reactionary and then people, uh, you know, would do exactly that. They would react. But in this case, I think it served as um, as as a, a, a genuine information source. So again, as a journalist, even I was looking more towards social media in terms of what people were saying on the ground, even in terms of uh, donating. You know, uh, you know, to help people out. You know, this is where people were having those conversations uh, in terms of, oh, this is the person you should reach to actually get money to people that need help. And uh, I think it just really democratized, you know, the access to information. And um, these organizations that are actually in touch with people from these regions were able to counter the narrative, uh, you know, that was that usually controls, you know, the um, the conversation, you know, when it comes to mainstream news. So, I mean, I've only seen it, to be honest, as a positive aspect. But these technical glitches actually brought more light to the problem because it showed it was an example of the systemic oppression that was Mm. also happening on a technical side with social media. Yeah, absolutely. Social media, you know, I, I read a study, it said 73% of people on social media thought that they were looking at like their unique page. Everyone saw the exact same news as they saw, which is why they look at you and you're like, you didn't know that Trump won by 12 million votes. And they look and you're like, I don't think that happened. And they look at you like you have oh, eight heads because they really believe that everyone that's news, you know, but it yeah. is so interesting and it's something so important to remember that that shit is curated very mm-hmm. very specifically oh, exactly. and it's putting yeah. people in boxes and it's i think leading to a lot of uh, a lot of distress 
within 100%. the population. When it, uh, Travis, do you want you want something? Yeah, I wanted to have kind of a, a follow up to that because I know mm. we we talk about like what outlets we try to watch here in the states that i feel covers the israeli-palestinian conflict more fairly democracy now is one that always comes to mind but i've seen you again because i follow you on social media uh you share some folks from al jazeera or um what journalists are you watching right now to to get more of like you're saying the real story the the story on the ground yeah it's weird i'm not like sometimes i'll just discover a like a new source uh from uh, basically it'll come on my feed, someone will share it. So it's more from individuals. Uh, so for example, I, I really liked uh, Mark Lamont Hill, uh, you know, an American who uh, mm-hmm. works uh, for Al Jazeera now after he had, basically he was ousted for, or canceled, uh, was it a uh, culture canceled? And, you know, for, you know, supporting. Yeah. Well, HuffPost I mean, Live, I think, right? They, oh, okay. they muscled him out and he helped like start that whole thing. I can't keep up. Yeah. And from CNN, he was a commentator on there and then his, his contract ended uh, without detail, apparently, uh, he was not the son of a governor and the brother of another of, of another governor. <laughs> so right. he, can't, he can't be on CNN. He's not. He doesn't come from enough money. <laughs> right, that's a whole different topic, right there. Oh my but, gosh. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I mean, he, he made it like an interesting comparison to uh, you know when people say like all lives matter versus Black Lives Matter, and just comparing the narrative of you know calling this like oh this is a war. This I just wish both sides. I think Rihanna had said something of like I, I wish you know peace would just be had between both sides, and he just really called out, you know, th- that type of language and that statement. So this is one sort in terms of the conversation. Uh, you know, I really liked, you know, what um, what he had to say. Uh, and he would just put in perspective that was relatable to Americans, you know, including myself, you know, where uh, I said, yeah, that's a very interesting comparison. It's not just because you're supporting the Palestinian cause. It doesn't mean you're against, you know, uh, Israel having its right to exist. It's just, you know, you have to acknowledge, you know, the suffering that Palestinians are going through. In terms of information, there's the Institute for Middle East Understanding. Uh, I find their information very interesting. It's just, it, uh, they highlight characters. They um, they put into context, you know, the news that you're hearing or correcting a lot of mainstream media that's mm-hmm. out there. Uh, in, like, say, um, you see a... Um, like even the Associated Press, I think at one point had the headline that referred to it as a conflict. They'll say, no, no, you can't call this a conflict. You know, this is an attack or uh, they'll always identify, you know, that Hamas attacked first and then Israel responded, you know, but then they're like, oh, what about the two steps before that? You know, where occupation has existed for for this long, you know, in in the area of Gaza. So it's just really tweaking things and putting, uh, it's not new information. It's just, as you said, you know, because sometimes people are getting a certain narrative and that's all they hear. This kind of gives you an alternative. So if you're in the U.S., you know, sitting on your phone that, uh, you know, and you have a friend that tweets out something, you know, from uh, IMEU, the Institute for Middle East Understanding, then Mm -hmm. that's a way that you come across it that you wouldn't otherwise, you know, if you were just watching TV or if you're just following the people that you usually follow. So I, I think that bridge is being gapped. Uh, and that's how I'm getting my information. If you are in the U.S. sitting on your phone, put it on uh, vibrate. I think that might actually feel <laughs> kind of fun. Um, you could have right. a good time with that. Uh, just thank you so much for spending so much time with yes. us. I know it's like one o'clock in the morning where you are, but I just right. have just to learn a little bit more. Just I'm going to steal more from your brain. Um, what's Go the what can you? When we hear the word Hamas, it's a very loaded term. Mm-hmm. Can you just kind of generally tell our audience and us? What's Hamas? What's their role? Why why do they exist and how did they get so much power in the region? I wish it's a big question. <laughs> it is, it is. And I, I can't say that I have the answer. I mean, when usually asked about that, because that is usually the first thing that 
you know, Americans especially ask, you know, when it comes to Gaza, what about Hamas, you know, the rockets, all of that. And I think it's what we were saying as well, you know, about Israeli people and their governments. It's there's a very big disconnect between people that I know from Gaza and living their daily lives versus Hamas. Like they don't tell me about, you know, their daily lives and interactions with them. It's more about, you know, their individual experience. So the way I see it, you know, Hamas was uh, created in the 1980s. It is a product of occupation. And uh, whether you call it, you know, guerrilla warfare or or terrorism, I, I can't be the person. Do they participate uh, in policing? Do they or is that what they do? Like as far like if I'm just a Palestinian and I'm walking down mm. the street and would I have an engagement with someone like a like a Hamas officer or like how tangible is it? Is it or is it more like kind of, um, you know, underground? Um, from again, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but like they are, from my understanding, the ruling authority there. But in terms of what the day to day you know, interactions are. I do believe that the more restricting uh, factors are the occupation in terms of electricity, water. Like this isn't stuff from my understanding that Hamas actually controls. This is okay. stuff that, you know, what's coming in and out of the country. That's more from uh, Israel, which is the occupying force there in terms, again, like I was saying, even with uh, like IT, uh, I think they're, they're still operating on 3G there as um uh, there was a Shabaka, an organization that's collecting data about this, was saying that, you know, that it's not just, you know, Internet that's uh, regulated there. They're not even allowed to get any intellectual property, uh, sorry, uh, technology like intellectual property there, you know, without permission. So I think that's been more where the, like uh, Palestinians have found restrictions, you know, than, uh, than Hamas. So, I mean, as you know, like during the 11 uh, day attack on Gaza, that, I mean, did anything change? Like, this isn't the first time that this has happened. You know, this has happened, uh, like, again, in 2008, 2012, 2014. Um, I, I don't think that Hamas really has um, the power to change the situation. Uh, it's just more like this is just the predicament that they're living in. Do you think that they're used as sort of a straw man in the argument, as sort of the, the boogeyman that we have to be scared of? Is is that one of the reasons why we hear so much about Hamas in this country and why the media hammers home, the, you know, how horrible they are? And I'm sure they've done some horrible things. I'm not discrediting all the violence and, and uh, anyone who is a victim of theirs. It's horrible. But do you find that perhaps their existence is uh, almost a benefit in some ways when it comes to PR. If you're the state of Israel, you point mm -hmm. to them as the bad guy, and then everyone's like, well, they have done some bad stuff. You almost wonder if, uh, well, that would be totally conspiratorial if, if Israel was funding Hamas. <laughs> but it does seem as if they use uh, yeah. Hamas quite regularly as like the reason why uh, they have such strict uh, rules. No, I think you said it very eloquently. I mean, uh, it's, it's an easy enemy. Um, if you if you have th this bad guy that's there, then you know whether you destroy. I think it was like around twenty thousand homes or uh, sixty seven children. Then uh, you know, um, then it's it's okay because we were just defending ourselves from this you know bad guy that was there. But then you forget you know about like the hundreds of people that were killed, the infrastructure that was destroyed, schools. I think they were saying it's about one hundred and fifty million dollars uh, in damages just in eleven days that were done to the infrastructure, let alone the actual lives. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure you saw the, the New York Times, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, they, uh, they were just children and you know, just the faces and, you know, kids that wanted to be doctors and live their lives. And they're just, you know, four and five years older in their early teens. I mean, 
it's easy to yeah. dismiss all of that when you say, oh, but they were being used as human shields. Like a lot of the myths that are used, you know, around, uh, you know, this is what a Palestinian is. They're willing to throw their lives, you know, t- uh, in the name of Hamas. That, those are the easy arguments. And that's what bolsters, you know, the status quo when attacking Gaza. Yeah. You know, the lies are pretty uh, deeply entrenched when you look at a, a dead child and, and rationalize it. Mm. That is a really sad, sad, sad thing. Reminds me a little bit of what we have with the, with our love of the gun, even uh, you know after <laughs> things like Sandy Hook and stuff like that is what it is. Um, Salim, mm. thank you so much for being on the show. Travis, uh, Fernando, do you guys have anything else? Um, I just want to thank you, Salim, for yeah. sharing um, your insight into this. It's you know you were kind of the first person I thought of. Um, I'm glad I, I did. It. And um, yeah, where can we find you on social media um, so people can find out? And more don't forget to your... plug your OnlyFans. Yes, right. Yes, I will be doing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no, um, so I think it's uh, across the board. Salim uh, Instagram, Salim underscore Saeed. Uh, Salim Asaid, uh, all is one word on Twitter. I mean, thank you guys for having me. I hope I didn't go on like too many tangents. I just no, really man. appreciate you guys taking the time to have this conversation because it's so important. I know I went a bit all over the place, but um, I think there's just so much to talk about, and you really you know hit the nail on the head. You know, in terms of you know what was important, and it's not about you know the uh, it's like who's right, who's wrong. It's again about humanity it's about yeah. uh you know realizing that people are suffering and they just want to live you know their day-to-day lives you know we're talking about you know israelis uh jewish people arabs palestinians everyone you know in, involved in this and uh that's what this is really all about and hopefully if, you know these types of conversations are creating more understanding that can lead towards that then you know we've done our jobs that's the goal, man. Absolutely. And uh, the fact that you're speaking so eloquently at one o'clock in the morning is a testament to you and your abilities, because uh, if it was any of us, it would have been a lot more uh, hammered. I get sleepy by 10. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> all right, everyone. There it was. Thank you all so much for listening to that conversation. Absolutely fascinating. And we have to remember who is not being talked about when reading articles. Remember, Ooh. like all the omissions, who's not being discussed because, you know, that they tell you certain things. And those things can be true. But I think as we've learned with with media, the biggest lie is usually by omission. One side of the story. And uh, then, of course, you don't understand fully what the hell's going on. So hopefully that helped kind of like, I don't know, round that circle, fill in some of that conversation so you could have a full, a more full uh, 360 view of what's happening in Israel and Palestine and Gaza. Naturally, that conversation continues on for a long time. Like a, a view from without, you know, a view that isn't funded by the money that we're putting into the the people that are against no i think we're only funded by trolley <laughs> i love those gummies do i do a trolley at today i'm not sure uh travis thank you so much for uh, calling in from ohio i know you got to go you got to go see the columbus crew i do i did want to highlight one cool thing obviously okay. we, we talked about larry householder and uh, the terrible the spectrum of ohio politics but today in the mail i received a handwritten letter from my senator sherrod brown thanking Aww. me for writing a letter to the editor about the hb6 scandal he said thank you for speaking out we all have much more to do to fix our state and our country and Dude. signed it personally so you know that's class act i talk about ohio's a deep red state but sherrod brown's a democrat gets real i love sherrod brown. and that's one of the reasons why i love sherrod brown he is awesome sherrod sherrod he sherrod sounds brown. like tom waits and he kind of does i'm gonna go drink wine out of a hat oh my goodness you must be a musician or a senator okay everyone well thank you so much for listening hope you're happy safe and healthy out there we had a great time in red rocks and uh, we'll just see you more on the road 
Okay, everyone, hail yourselves. We'll talk to you soon. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.